32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. It's micro-county week here at United <laughs> Ireland. This week's county is O'Devany's Gardens. This week's question. Why is the O'Devany's Gardens development such a mess? And why is the ODG saga important? It's a story about public land and private developers. It's a story about how poor people are treated when it comes to housing. It's a story about how political spats and perhaps incompetence delay the building of social housing. Perhaps. It's a story about how local authorities lost the capacity to build. It's a story about the housing crisis. It's a story about how the Department of Housing, the Minister for Housing, Dublin City Council and local, local communities often clash. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. That is? That's it. <laughs> that's it. How was your week, Andrea? My week was laden down with being sick a lot. So I had to cancel loads of things, which I am devastated because I love Ganesh. So uh, big up to the Belong to Rainbow Ball. I hope they raise loads of money. And also the Roland Murray and Dragna Jurisic, uh inverse. No, what's the word? Oh, immersive. See, sickness still intact. Uh exhibition in the RHA. It looked like it was absolutely fab. But you did have no more hotels at the weekend. (laughs) Yes. So I had to take a lot of Nurofen to get myself (laughs) ready to be able to party. And party I did. It was just the best night ever. I love it so much. It's my favourite night in the world. Um, And obviously you have a vested interest in that considering you run it. I know, but like it's just, it just is so good. When's the next one? The next one it hasn't been announced yet, but exclusive No More Hotels content. It's going to be, uh, we're going to have a love ball with a love affair for our city on Valentine's Day. Oh my God, amazing. It's actually the 15th, but Valentine's Day is much more marketing efficient. Excellent. <laughs> How was your week? My week was fun. I went to see Kate Tempest in Vicar Street on Friday. I think it may have been the gig of the year for me. And it's been a strong year for gigs. It's been a strong year. It was just so brilliant. And um, one of the reasons why it was so great is that she just came out at the start and she was like, you know, I'm about to do the show. And um, if you want to take a photo or anything, take it of me now, because I'm just going to ask you to put your phones in your pockets. And she's like, it's really she's just she just said it's really difficult for me to perform when I'm looking at loads of phones. Oh, my God. And somebody else locked all the phones away. I don't know. Was that her? Hannah Gatsby on Sunday night in the board gosh or is that the board gaze energy theater where I which I also went to. So it was this interesting weekend of like how you're taking in um culture without phones. I actually had a big conversation with Jess Brennan, who's the queen of the sesh um, Mm. at No More Hotels and she runs a club night called Sanctuary where they take your phone off you before you go in Um, and she said she couldn't get over the difference of a club night without phones. It's completely different and and so yeah, so the the Kate Tampa show just became really just super engaging and the Hannah Gatsby one yeah I mean who's looking at their fucking phones during stand-up show anyway so that was my weekend but the week that was the fallout continues from Prince Andrew's um, bananas interview uh, that he gave (laughs) zero sweat yeah that he can't sweat (laughs) that he never hugs people cue everybody posting photos of him hugging women and sweating zero empathy totally arrogant but what do you expect from a load of random people who grow up in palaces <laughs> you know one of the funny things of this is like you know the British media British public like oh my god this is so shocking it's like you have a monarchy like you are subjects basically 
because of this social structure. So maybe if you want people to be accountable, don't have them fucking rolling around in like gold carriages. And they do a lot for tourism. What? That's that's always the fight back. It's like we can't get rid of the royal family. It's really good for tourism. Anyway, but that yields tourism trope. Speaking of other people who should uh, (laughs) cop the the uh, British public should cop onto this is really great. Um, what's happening in Uxbridge, which is Boris Johnson's constituency. Basically, a bunch of youth campaigners have kind of come together and they're trying to get uh, Boris out. They're basically trying to make him lose his seat in the general election, um, which would make him the second prime minister to lose his seat in general election. So if he lost his seat, would he lose his prime ministerial role? Yeah, because he wouldn't be, be a in, politician. In, in the parliament. So I um, love a little strategic come together to overturn. Well, it sounds quite shit. like I was like, God, that I wonder is that a bit of a stretch? But it's not really because basically his majority that he won by in twenty seventeen is actually quite small. It was only just over five thousand votes. Um, and the previous election it was eleven thousand votes, so he kind of his vote collapsed a little bit. And so there's a bunch of groups. There's uh, f- the Fuck Boris group, which is run by this um, load of deadly women, Grime for Corbyn, uh, the UK Student Climate Network, and the Feminist Anti Fascist Assembly, and Youth Can, which is this crowdfunded collective, and they're trying to they're putting up billboards and they're trying to register people to vote and they're basically um, are saying that like the demographics in terms of age and the constituency are changing so maybe this is something that they can do so go go on the Uxbridge campaigners I do think it is brilliant but like you get rid of Boris he's just a front for it somebody else is going to step in and fuck it all over again yeah but you have to do something you do tell me about the flower sellers oh god so uh, it was said that one of the property management or property owners uh, wanted to get rid of the flower sellers on Grafton Street because they cluttered up the area um, and it's like it just is it's so in bits but one of the flower sellers was on the radio yesterday and they were like they may own the buildings but they don't own Dublin go on it's like they're going to lead us into the revolution amazing and I'm like, into it so am I they've been there for 160 years get in the fucking sea you absolute dose of hauntuses trying to get rid of them what else is happening this week the last thing is uh, this has kind of been going on for a few weeks but uh, there's been a lot of attacks on sex workers and the sex workers um, SWAI and a number of the other ones have come out and said this is exactly what we said would happen under the Nordic model and um, there was no consultation with actual sex workers when this uh, all this legislation was brought in which, which criminalised the purchase of sex right? and yeah. also that they can't live together or they can't work together so mm. you have to basically work on your own if you want to be a sex worker um, which is not great especially with the attacks are proving now that people are attacking them for cash um, that's a topic that I think we'll get into in a, in a later podcast because there's a lot uh, to be said around that. But for now, we're going to delve into um, a different kind of county facts this week. We're going to give you the O'Devonese timeline. I hope you're all ready to listen and learn <laughs> about our epic O'Devony Gardens timeline. Andrea. O'Devony Gardens was built in 1954. It's fair to say that despite having a very strong community, that in fairness, the impact of poverty, a lack of resource in the community, unemployment and the heroin e- epidemic of the 80s and 90s in Dublin inner city really had an impact on O'Devony's and it was depicted as one of the most deprived and neglected estates in the city. 
And on the back of that, during the boom, plans were made to redevelop the site. And that culminated in a public-private partnership, PPP, between Dublin City Council and the developer Bernard McNamara. Now, this plan hit the skids when the property market collapsed. And like many developers, um, McNamara ended up in NAMA uh, with $1.5 billion in debt. You might remember kind of, you know, Celtic Tiger times, all the hoarding around town bearing the McNamara name. And like many developers at that time, he made some disastrous business decisions, including being part of the consortium that paid uh, $412 million for the infamous glass bottle site in Ringsend. I don't know what that is. What is it? There was a, a site in Ringsend that was basically where the glass bottle recycling was done. And it, it was kind of seen as this absolute prime uh, location, Dublin 4, there was constantly all these like, you know, oh, maybe people are going to buy it and who's going to buy it and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and a load of developers came together to buy it and they bought it at peak, peak, peak because they nearly half a billion quid for a site in Dublin. And then obviously when um, the whole market collapsed that a lot of those developers were kind of the high profile types that ended up in NAMA. Stinger. Stinger. So what happened to our old pal Bernard? Well, along with being a bust billionaire who also happened to own 32 apartments in Dublin 4, he audaciously asked Nama to pay him a salary of half uh, 500,000 a year while he was working out his debt. Um, and he has, like many Celtic Tiger era developers, returned to the property game. Uh, he was discharged from bankruptcy five years ago and his company Rockstip has since built around 30 houses on a site in Donabate in North Dublin. Um, and earlier this year, another McNamara company, MB McNamara Construction, submitted a planning application to build 112 apartments on the site of the Swiss Cottage Pub in Santry. And that was given the go ahead in April. Fair play to him. Um, and also this year, he submitted a planning application to build 250 homes in Drogheda. He's also managing developments on behalf of Dennis O'Brien and Michael Smurfish. But enough about Bernard and back to D7, although I really enjoyed your Bernard McNamara sidebar. <laughs> um, with no developer left to enact the plans for O'Devonies, Dublin City Council said in 2012 that they couldn't afford to do it themselves. But they set about preparing the site anyway in case another really clever, rich white guy came along with the know-how. And in 2015, the council tried to get things going again, kind of hawking the site out to interested developers under what was now called the Housing Land Initiative. And the Housing Land Initiative, in simple terms, is a way that the council tries to work with developers with public land to get mixed developments built. And by mixed developments, we're talking about private, social and affordable housing together in one development. The blocks of flats at O'Devonies were demolished in 2016, leaving the site empty. It's important now to remember some of the discourse that was going on amongst councillors about the site. Isla Shrine, a former councillor with the Workers' Party, put forward a proposal that the site should be redeveloped as 100% public housing. 50% for those on the housing list and 50% essentially affordable housing. And a lot of the things um, the likes of Ryan were saying were resisted ideologically. And ideologically is just thrown around all the time with this, isn't it? Um, but this idea that public land should be developed as public housing began to get traction. Unfortunately, Eilish lost her seat in the last local elections, which is definitely a shame because she was extraordinarily active in housing in the area, including around the occupations of buildings in the north inner city in protest at the housing crisis. So instead of pursuing that plan, um, that kind of the 50-50 housing list, affordable housing, councillors came up with the plan that the site be redeveloped to include a different kind of makeup. And this is where the 50-30-20 comes in. 50% private housing, that's housing sold in the private market, obviously. 20% affordable housing, that's housing sold on affordable housing schemes. And 30% social housing. 
that plan was a Sinn Féin proposal but Fine Gael were against it um, I think Coveney at the time was looking at kind of 10% social housing um, so now we kind of after all that happened, we are entering the kind of confusing or more confusing part of things. So while the council were sorting out who would develop the site as a whole, they began to build social housing on one part of it, 56 homes to be exact. Um, they're still being built. I was around there a couple of hours ago actually today uh, looking at the housing there and I read a piece in the Indos that said they were completed, but they're not. They're still building them uh, down in Odebney. So that's a social housing part. So then in May of this year, the local election saw Sinn Féin lose a lot of seats on Dublin City Council and the Greens gained some and re-entered the things that Eilish Ryan was talking about, the issue of public land being sold off by the council to private developers, which also, which was also an issue Labour councillors and the Social Democrat councillors had been really vocal about. So then councillors from the Green Party, the Social Democrats, Labour and Fianna Fáil drafted the Dublin Agreement 2019 to 2024. You love to see a little plan in place, don't you, for the city? Cliff notes on the Dublin Agreement, it had loads of stuff in it. Climate, transport, arts, heritage, sports, cycling, waste and litter. And basically it was a series of commitments and actions that this group of councillors from these parties were going to strive for. And it's also worth noting that there's nothing definitive in that plan. It's always like, we will try and do this and we will try. I thought that was pretty interesting to note. And on housing, one of the things that the Dublin Agreement says, and this is a quote from it, right? And this is important uh, related to Adavani's we will reject any selling off of publicly owned land to private developers within the city boundaries in the absence of a clear evidence-based justification that the monetary benefit to the council far outweighs the long-term social and economic benefit foregone in terms of the necessary development of housing and other public uses. Basically, we're not going to sell off any public land unless council gets fucked on the money. And it was kind of a tacit acknowledgement that this practice of selling public land to developers or entering into kind of one for me, two for you kind of agreements with developers was infringing upon the ideal use of that land, I suppose, for public housing or public use. Anyway, the council chose Bartra as the developer a few months ago. What do you need to know about Bartra? Well, Bartra Capital Property was founded by Richard Barrett and Barrett used to be Johnny Rowland's business partner in Treasury. He's from Mayo. He spent a good deal of the last decade living in Asia and he speaks Mandarin. In an interview in the Sunday Business Post in 2017, he referred to the regulation of residential development planning as nanny statism, but then he has referred to the social housing deficit in Ireland as a humanitarian crisis. He's also the guy behind a lot of those in-bits co-living projects in the city, which have been heavily criticised, including the communal living like even that, those words, development plans in Dunleary, which got the go-ahead, and also ones in Blanchardstown, Cookstown, and Tala, and another in Rat Mines, which had its planning refused by Dublin City Council twice, with the council saying it was a per standard of residential accommodation um, across design and layout, and where chairs and beds would have to be stored to create living space in the units. Green Party councillor Patrick Costello called the plan deeply substandard. So what the development plans kind of looked like then for O'Davenies, uh once Bartra got on board, was 768 homes. 411 private units would include 119 one-beds, 274 two-beds and 18 three-bedroom apartments. Um, so when we're talking about like families living in places, it kind of definitely doesn't skew towards families in terms of those spaces. The 192 social homes would be made up of 11 three-bedroom houses, 64 one-bedroom apartments, 82-bed apartments and 37 three-bed apartments. 
So what happens in September? We've got a new council. Andrea? The council came back and the ODG development has kind of started but also kind of hasn't and this council are like whoa 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 wait a minute we haven't actually voted on the deal that went through it was a Sinn Féin proposal that was negotiated and signed off on and we are the new council in town and we still have some stuff to talk about regarding Devney Gardens and you may remember lots of conversations about how affordable i.e. not the so-called affordable homes would be really and the conversation around having a private developer build private homes on public land restarted and basically some councillors were putting their foot down and saying that they weren't going to vote the deal through so the vote was postponed then genius face Owen Murphy gets involved basically holding the councillors over a barrel and factually saying there's no plan B if you don't vote this through the whole thing will be delayed again for years always a great negotiation ten, it will take 10 years and nothing will happen <laughs> so the councillors um, presumably some of whom were kind of afraid of losing the whole deal went to Bartra to get some other commitment from them as well as what was already on the table. And what they secured was Bartra saying that as well as 30% social and 20% affordable to buy, 30% of the total units in the development will be bought from Bartra and offered on an affordable rent scheme. The council voted that revised deal through. Sorted. Except it's not sorted because our old Paolo Murphy was like, hey, we never negotiated that and we don't have the public funds to buy those gas and offer them at affordable rents. May or not be his actual words. So now after multiple plans, multiple protests, multiple votes, we have reached a point where even though councillors voted this plan through on the back of this new commitment from Bartra, it's a little muddy about how solid that commitment actually is and whether the plans can go ahead at all or should go ahead at all. So there you have it. I think we did well there. <laughs> well, to find out the answers to what happens next, oh no, Breen is coming in. So we don't usually have politicians on this podcast, but this week on this topic, we're making something of an exception. Ono Brin is Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest, and he's um, Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, planning and local government. And when myself and Andrea are talking about housing, um, I think it's safe to say we're frequently drawn to or reference the work that Owen does on this issue, be it raising questions in the doll or pulling Owen Murphy up on stuff or highlighting aspects of the housing crisis that need attention. And this week he um, published a letter he got through Freedom of Information request, which has shone the light again on the O'Davany mess. The letter was sent by Owen Murphy to the mayor of Dublin, uh, Paul McAuliffe, who's a Fianna Fáil politician. And in it, Murphy was basically saying that this 30% figure uh, for affordable rent homes, the Dublin agreement crew apparently secured with Bartrow, which we mentioned earlier, isn't a runner. Um, Owen, you're fresh out of a housing committee. Um, thank you for being here in studio in United Ireland. First of all, do you like the name of the podcast? Of course I do. <laughs> What's not to like? I, I think every podcast should be called Uniting Ireland. But let's get into this, um, the, mo- the, the most contemporary aspect of this uh, shenanigans, this 30% affordable rental gaffes figure. Did the Dublin Agreement crew pull a fast one on other councillors and lead them to believe that this was a runner so that other councillors would just vote the deal through or did they themselves think it was a runner without dotting the I's crossing the T's? Have they messed up? Well, I think they've messed up and I think it's a mixture depending on who you're talking about. I think there are some people who know they haven't got this 30% affordable rental uh, and I think there are probably some people in in the Dublin Agreement group including some of the newer councillors or the more progressive councillors 
who there's a level of complexity to this. They're just in the job, uh, uh, and uh, I don't think they fully understand what is and isn't on the table. So, so let's be very clear. There was a decision taken by Dublin City Council on the 4th of November to approve what's called a Section 183 land disposal. That's the transfer of land from the public over to a developer, in this case, Bartra. That Section 183 agreement, this is the legally binding agreement that was voted on, hasn't changed. It was the same as the one that uh, a majority of councillors were saying they were going to vote against a month earlier. What has changed is uh, there has been some engagement with Bartra. Bartra have indicated that once the development is finished, they would have no objection in principle to selling 30% of the development uh, uh, and those would be coming from the private open market price houses to an approved housing body. Uh, Of course they wouldn't. Uh, I mean, if they can sell a block of houses in one go, of course they'll sell a block, but they'll sell them at market price. Um, And the difficulty there is the market price of those houses uh, on the basis of the reports we have is €450,000. So if the state were to fund that, so the way this works is an approved housing body wants to buy units, they have to get a 30% equity payment from the Department of Housing. It's called a capital advance loan facility payment. And they use that 30% equity to go to a private bank or the housing finance agency to get the rest. So no request has gone to the department for from Dublin City Council or any approved housing body for that equity. But even if the department gave that equity, because the cost of the houses is so high, paying down the HFA or private bank loan plus the management and maintenance of those 30% of units would push the rent up to or close to market levels at the moment. So while I've no doubt that the the Dublin uh, Agreement Group have got an indication from Barter that Barter would be willing to sell some units to an AHB, what's very, very clear is that would be at market price, therefore would not be affordable. And that's why Owen Murphy is saying his department won't provide the matching finance because they're not in the business of buying houses at 450,000. And what's also important, and I I really think a lot of the councillors who have signed up to this don't understand, what does that 450,000 euros represent? What is mixed up in that? Only a portion of that is the construction costs. What Bartra have put into that figure is a full market value of the land on which that house or apartment sits at probably between 75,000 and 100,000 euros per unit of accommodation. What that means is the councillors have voted to give the land to Bartra for free. Bartra is now going to sell, it says, some of those houses to an approved housing body, which the taxpayer will pay for. But in addition to paying for the bricks and mortar, the taxpayer is also going to buy back the land at full market price. Even though it's public land. That they currently own. Own. Well, they they no longer own because they're in the process of transferring it. So, uh, I mean, look, I I don't know the motivations of everybody in here, but what is absolutely clear is there is no affordable rental accommodation on that site irrespective of whether the Minister finances the purchasing of those houses or not. Uh, And think about it this way. To deliver a good quality council home at the moment costs an average €216,000. Why the hell would you buy units off Bartra for £450,000 and double pay for your own land when you could use that money to deliver two brand new social houses or apartments on that side or somewhere else? I suppose the conversation around that is that we don't have the money to, and that's what's trotted out all the time, we don't have the money to build them, so we have to do this deal. What's that? Well, first of all, you, you don't need the money to build them all, right? So, you know, w- one of the things when when the 
back in 2017, when a majority of councillors, including the Sinn Féin councillors and Dublin City Council, gave approval for Dublin City Council management to explore this land initiative with the private sector. There was a working assumption by by most councillors that the type of prices you'd be looking at for the affordable purchase would be in line with the O'Cool on affordable houses up in Ballymun. Public land, uh, no development levies, uh, uh, no site servicing, and the houses sold for 180 to 225,000. Equally, there was a working assumption that the developer, if the developer was getting land to sell private houses, the developer would buy that land at market price. That's what happened out in South Dublin County Council in a similar initiative uh, 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 earlier this year. So I suppose what everybody was surprised about is when the final numbers on the barter deal came out, the affordable purchase houses were between 310 and 360,000 and you were giving away the land for free. That just made no sense. Now, it is absolutely possible to structure this development in a way that would get it into the government's capital programme on the money that they've already earmarked over the next three years with some housing finance agency or European Investment Bank finance. That's what's happened on St. Michael's Estate in Inchicore, 30% social, 70% affordable rental. Final details still to be decided. So that could have been done here. Our central difficulty is, and and, and Rory Hearn uh, from Maynooth University writing the Irish Independent today, you know, he nails it. He says it's very, very clear. It's not that government doesn't have the money. Government does not want to invest uh, uh, the requisite level of capital to secure and deliver not only large volumes of social housing, large volumes of affordable purchase and rental homes for people who don't qualify for social housing. And until we crack that nut, we're going to come up against this difficulty time and time again. Mm. Let's zoom out a little. Why is this model of um, providing housing that we're seeing in O'Davenny being pursued? So the origins of it were when uh, local authorities weren't being given any money by central government. So from 2008 to 2014, capital spending uh, on building and buying new social homes was slashed by 90%, first by Fianna Fáil, then by Fine Gael and Labour. The situation now, however, is is in the background to O'Devany. The government is looking at uh, uh, new mechanisms to roll out large-scale house building. Uh, and their vehicle that they're proposing is the Land Development Agency. It doesn't have any legislative basis at the minute. It doesn't have real uh, 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 finance, although it's been set up on a voluntary basis and the legislation is going through the Oireachtas. They want the Land Development Agency to be off balance sheet, that it's not government money or government spending and therefore it it doesn't fall foul of of, uh, uh, the government's uh, fiscal rules in terms of the European Union and how it sets up government finance. To do that, a majority of every development has to be open market commercial houses. So that means on average 60% of every bit of land that you would develop in the round would have to be non-social and non-affordable. It would have to be open market price houses. And what they want to do is take this land initiative that was, I suppose, been piloted in O'Devany and and use that as a template for large-scale residential development across the state. The problem, however, is is that it means if that agency is going to develop 150,000 new homes over 20 years, which is the plan, to the tune of about 45 billion euros, 60% of all of those homes will be open market price, which means they'll be way, way beyond even higher income earning households. It also means 30% will be so-called affordable, but on the basis of O'Devany, how affordable will they be to rent or buy? And you'll only get 10% social, even worse than the O'Devany deal. So there's a kind of an ideological commitment within Fine Gael, um, which is the private sector does this better, but also a kind of a pragmatic view, which is they don't want the state to be on the hook for the expenditure and therefore you have to have it off balance sheet and therefore it has to be a commercial, uh, you know, kind of company limited by guarantee or a designated activities company as it's called now. 
Uh, and the difficulty with that, of course, is you undermine the ability of the state to deliver large volumes of social and affordable homes. But you also shroud it in secrecy. So it's not subject to freedom of information. It's not required to comply with the lobby register. And a lot of the confusion over Devony Gardens over the last two months is that councillors, and I have a lot of, of, of sympathy for the position councillors are in, don't have actually access to the hard facts of, well, how much is Bartra getting paid for the social housing units? How much land value have Bartra included in the uh, sale price of the affordable units or the open market price units? <clears throat> and that's a really bad way to develop any large-scale capital project. And it means councillors are making decisions, whether for or against, kind of... They've kind you know, of been thrown under the bus. With kind of half blindfolded and not fully aware of what it is they're actually voting for. Mm. You know, all of this always kind of comes down to the same conversation about that we shouldn't be handing over private or public land to private developers, that the state needs to build social housing, that local governments or local authorities are best positioned to do that. And then the counter argument to that, if you take away the ideologies of it, are practical around, well, actually, we stripped all the capacity of local government to do that. So if we were to reinvigorate or restart that capacity, it would actually cost way, way more than just getting, you know, Richard Barrett or whoever to to, to build these houses. Like, how do we sort that kind of log jam out? Well, the first thing is you need to separate builders and developers. So. Uh, uh, all social housing today uh, is built by private builders and those builders make a 5 or 6% margin uh, on the homes that they build. What what is happening with O'Devany, for example, or, or Kilcarbury in my own constituency is not a private builder making a reasonable return on, on the work that they do, but a consortium of developers and financiers and land managers. Uh, and they add multiple layers of profit because the developer has to get their margin, uh, the landowner or the land financier has to get their margin, and that dramatically infl- inflates the price. So the first thing is, in the short to medium term, nobody really is asking for local authorities to build all of these houses. What we want is local authorities to be given the capacity in terms of staff and the finance to be the developer to develop out their own sites. They can do that themselves. They can do that in conjunction with not-for-profit, approved housing bodies, community land trusts, cooperatives like Okulon. But the local authorities have to be the developer. They have a lot of the skills to do that. They do need some more uh, staff and expertise, but that's easily provided. And it's much quicker to allow the local authorities to do it because your organisation is already there. Whereas if you want to create a new organisation, sure, that takes a year, two years. You know, it doesn't necessarily have the local knowledge, the local information uh, and the capacity. So the quickest way to do this would be to fully resource in the local authorities. Uh, and I suppose here's where the real problem is. Part of our difficulty is local authorities have been stripped of power, staff and funding, not just since the recession, but since the late 80s. Right? The, the, the era of large scale public house building stopped in 1986, 1987 and has never fully recovered. And instead we have all these multiple schemes where you have part five, so you buy a percentage of the private development, you have the housing assistance payment, the rental accommodation scheme which is subsidising private homeowners to provide social housing. Instead of saying what we want is a volume of public housing to meet social and affordable housing need on a scale the state has never seen and the best vehicle to deliver them are already there, we just have to give them the staff and the money. Do you under do you like appreciate how some people and I probably include myself in this, like when you look at 
a lot of the work that the council does or a lot of the decisions that they make in planning or just in loads of things that's actually really poorly executed that the idea of handing or, you know, handing back um, that kind of development power to the council will kind of send shivers down people's spine when they see the Alan Keegan saying he's going to cut down all the trees to the, <laughs> at the weekend. <laughs> well, I'd say a couple of things. So, first of all, you need to look at this in the round. So, councils aren't perfect, um, and even at the height of large-scale public house construction, they weren't public. So, we had they weren't perfect. So, we had problems in the 1930s of poorly constructed apartment blocks in Dublin city centre that subsequently had to be knocked down. Uh, uh, there were examples in the 1990s of local authority-led projects. I have a large one in my own constituency, which were poorly built because private contractors who were employing uh, uh, exploited labour from overseas. Uh, uh, developed the buildings very badly. So the argument isn't local authorities are perfect. The argument is that in the round, if you look at the output of public housing that our local authorities delivered over the course of the 20th century, the vast majority of it is really, really good quality. Mm. And you only have to go and look at the prices people are paying today for houses in Crumlin, Crumlin or in Dolphin's Barn or in Merino to see that's good quality housing stock. Mm. And in general, where local authorities got it wrong, for example, Ballymun is often cited, it wasn't the accommodation that was necessarily the problem, although there were some structural problems with those developments. It was the fact that they built housing and they didn't put in infrastructure. They didn't put in educational and employment opportunities. And then when problems arose, for example, like heroin in inner city Dublin in the 1980s, they didn't have an adequate community and guard a response to tackle those issues. So large scale public housing in and of itself is not a problem. Um, but multiple deprivation and the failure of the state to respond to long-term unemployment and drugs, etc., is, is the difficulty. Uh, and I suppose the one thing I would say is, back in the era of large-scale public housing provision, the range of households who lived in those homes was much broader than the range of households who are by and large allocated social housing today. So public housing was seen as housing for a broad range of income groups within working-class communities. Once they started to dramatically reduce the output of public housing in the late 80s, it became to be seen as kind of social welfare housing, housing for the very, very poor, the unemployed and unemployable. And while that's a bit of a stereotypical characterization, <clears throat> for new developments it has some truth. So what we also need to do is not only argue for, for public land to be used for public housing, but we need to understand that when we talk about public housing, it's not just those people who need subsidised housing because their incomes are too low. We need large volumes of public housing for the four of us that are sat in this room, for people on good incomes, on modest incomes, for pensioners, for people in, in and out of precarious employment. So that create a mixed community. So, so that instead of having just 9% of our total housing stock public, which is the way it is, we should have 30%. And the crucial thing here is not mixed tenure, it doesn't matter what the ownership is. We need mixed income. We need mixed uh, age. We need mixed ethnicity, particularly in our urban centres. Uh, and we need mixed occupation. And if you create those kind of mixed communities, they're more vibrant, economically sustainable, they produce much better communities, so long as the housing is good and the services and infrastructure put in at the same time. Mm, sounds like a utopia. It, it sounds like very many European Sensible. cities <laughs> that have been doing this for decades. Yeah. And look, we need not to romanticise other jurisdictions. They also have problems. Yeah. But for example, the St. Michael's Estate in Inchicore, that project, <clears throat> which was hard fought in the first instance by the community around the St. Michael's regeneration team, but actively supported by progressive councillors and TDs from a range of parties. We got that out of the land initiative and into a fully public development with 30% social, 70% affordable rental, a public library, some retail at the front for economic opportunity. It's in the middle of a transport hub because it's on that Inchicore Road with, with good bus service into the city centre. 
that's the way we should be doing this, not what's on O'Devany or in Kilcarbury in my own constituency. Is there any chance of that happening with O'Devany at this stage? The, the only way it could happen is there's a special meeting um, uh, uh, of the City Council on Monday night um, of next week uh, to discuss this. If a majority of councillors were to emerge to say that the decision on the 4th of November is not valid because some councillors who voted for the deal feel that they were misled, you could uh, uh, overturn or introduce a new Section 183 which would rescind the deal with Bartra. The difficulty is the longer you leave it, the more open you leave the council to legal action by Bartra, who up until that vote on the 4th of November didn't have a, a, a guaranteed uh, uh, secure deal. That deal has now been legally approved yes. by the council. So unless the councillors act really quickly to reverse that, uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it, it's going to be very, very difficult to reverse. But uh, Monday of next week is the chance. Do you think the um, the kind of original deal, the or one of one of many, like the 50, 30, 20 split, do you think that's the best deal right now? I mean, that was a proposal by Sinn Féin councillors. It's not, and it was never the best deal. The origins of it are the original land initiative was to have 10% social housing, which, which nobody thought was a good idea. Apart from Simon Coveney. I'm not even sure he completely thought it was a good idea, but that was what was originally on the table, mm. right? But certainly on the city council level, a vast majority of councillors, because of course progressives had a majority on the council, were against it. Uh, uh, Simon Coveney intervened uh, and I suppose a, a, a compromise was put on the table of 30% social, 20% affordable purchase. I, I, I don't think the majority of councillors who supported that thought it was the best deal. Uh, but these are always difficult decisions councillors have to make, which is if there's a deal on the table, do you say no to it uh, in the hope that you get a better deal but with no guarantee? Or do you say yes to it and try and make the best? And it's a real Hobson's choice. So I don't you know, uh, uh, judge any uh, progressive councillor who said, no, we shouldn't have accepted that. I mean, I think they made a, a, a genuine decision to say, no, that's not a good deal. It was our councillors were in the position where they were trying to deliver homes. And if you could get 30% social, 20% genuinely affordable and the market price for the land that was probably about as much as you could live with our difficulty is we haven't even ended up with that so the 20% affordable isn't affordable and you're not getting anything for the land maybe about 6 million euros net in the end so certainly the 2017 deal if you want to call it that wasn't the best deal by any stretch of the imagination but when central government decides what's on the table you have to make those calls I think the difference now however is when the detail of the Barter deal was published. Universally, the public reaction was against. Mm. Universally. So you had, you know, on Morning Ireland, on Drive Time, the Minister and the Director of Housing in, in Dublin City Council roasted for what was been there. The deal was so bad, I actually think it opened up an opportunity to go back to what I think a majority councillors pre-2017 would have preferred, which is the government to fund it phase over three uh, 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 phases through the capital programme. That window was rapidly closing. But I still think Monday provides an opportunity that I don't think was necessarily there in 2017 to put pressure on the minister to reverse. For that to happen, however, you need something solid. And the only way of doing it is for the councillors to reject the Barter deal and then start to approve what are called Part A planning applications, it's where councillors uh, uh, or the local authority applies to itself for planning permission. Part A planning applications throughout the course of 2020 to get the planning in place. Councillors can do that. They have that authority. That would put huge pressure on Owen Murphy to start to fund it and fund it at appropriate levels so you could deliver not only 33% social, you could deliver 33% affordable rental at really affordable rents and 33% affordable purchase. Mm. 
We'll talk about Owen Murphy in a second, but let's talk about the department that he presides over because we rarely actually hear about the role of the department in these kind of things. We talk about the councillors, we talk about, you know, the minister. Like, what can the department be doing better? So, look, I, I engage with the departmental officials, particularly at a, a senior level, very extensively in my position as, I suppose, an opposition spokesperson. And I'll say this. They're exceptionally hardworking people. They are, in the main, people who believe in public service and believe what they're doing is in the public interest. There are a couple of, of systemic problems. None of them are housing specialists, none of them. So they're all generalists moving from one government department to another, which does create real difficulties. They are also, I suppose, uh, working to the behest of the minister and depending how the minister interacts with them, that can shape what they do and what they don't do. There are some occasions that they get things terribly wrong. Um, uh, they misunderstand or, or they fail to appreciate. And I think probably my biggest criticism of them is alongside the department, you have the housing agency an agency that was set up by the government to have housing specialists, to have housing experts. One of its function is to advise the department and the minister. They're an organisation I have a huge amount of time and faith in. They produce really good research. Nine times out of ten, the government and the department don't implement the recommendations they make. Um, and I think that indicates a kind of a particular uh, problem. Why? Uh, the straight answer is I don't know because I'm not in the department. Or I'm not in the meeting rooms with, with the minister when those big decisions are taken. But you take, for example, affordable rental. So we have a huge problem at the minute, which large numbers of 20, 30, and even 40-somethings on modest and good incomes cannot afford to rent in the private sector. And the volatility in the private sector is so great that that's going to be the way it's going to be for quite some time. For a decade, the housing agency, John O'Connor in particular, who's one of the country's most expert persons in housing policy, has been screaming, build large-scale city centre affordable cost rental apartments and that then means that working people like yourselves would be able to afford them at rents of 700, 900 euros a month for standard two bedroom apartments and they could live there forever if they want or they could live there while they're saving for deposit or Simon uh, Alan Kelly in his uh, housing plan when he was minister said yes we're going to make affordable cost rental government policy and we'll initiate a pilot never happened Simon Coveney put the same thing into Rebuilding Ireland that pilot is currently under construction. Now, this is almost five years after it became officially government policy in inverted commas back in 2014. But it's for 50 units and they won't be ready till next year. So John O'Connor, you know, at the housing agencies conference last year, got up and said the political system does not understand the scale of the affordable rental crisis for professional working people. Uh, and until they do, and until they start to invest in uh, an appropriate supply of affordable cost rental, working professionals are going to come under real difficulty and like both of you have spoken about the, the kind of the creative drain from our city one of the big problems is the cost of rent affordable cost rental is the solution to that problem um, and if we had the government either freeing up land for not for profit uh, approved housing bodies community land trusts creative trusts of artists developing uh, accommodation you could have really good quality uh, rental accommodation in Dublin city centre today for between seven and nine hundred euros a month. So, first of all, that's the problem. They don't have the expertise and they don't listen to the expertise that's there. But ultimately, these decisions are taken by the minister. And the difficulty, of course, is, is this minister even interested 
in solving the fundamental problems in our housing system or is he obsessed with just trying to present himself in the best possible light and batting everybody back and I think that's our problem It feels like he's completely out of touch with the actual real life real lived experiences of people in the city Which is weird because he's a young guy from Dublin He is but my, my worry is is that and I follow him very closely. I have an unhealthy interest in, in housing ministers. I spend far too much time observing them, following them, shadowing them. And that's, that's my job. Owen's not stupid. Uh, Owen Murphy, that is. Um, uh, I believe that he works hard. I believe that he puts in large numbers of hours in the week, right? Um, is that working smartly we're, then? We're, we're blessed here that we have a housing policy community of real calibre and strength. And some of the names you'll know, you're... Uh, uh, Orla Hegarty's and Deirdre Lyons and you know other people you wouldn't necessarily know but they're real experts like Michelle Norris and Tony Fahey etc. So there's no end of expertise there's no end of research um, yet what I've come to realise with Owen is despite him at the outset of his ministerial career in this department expressing an interest to want to understand and change I don't think he wants to do either I think in the main his primary obsession is is to make himself look good. And the difficulty, of course, is in doing that, he's not focusing on what's actually really important, which is fixing the problem. If he focused on fixing the problem, the looking good would look after itself. And I, I, I think that's the difficulty there. Simon Coveney was a little bit the same. And you could see as soon as Simon Coveney got an opportunity to turn his back on the people he promised to serve and leave the department, he ran. And Owen Murphy, I think, will do the same thing. Is there... Um, you know, that's a strong criticism, but I think it's a criticism that people will, um, you know, uh, kind of agree with. It's certainly something that I've been saying repeatedly <laughs> for the last a while. Is there, a, I think one of the frustrations that people have living in this city is um, the feeling that the likes of Owen Murphy and government just don't get it. They don't understand the impact that the housing crisis, which is obviously multifaceted, is having on people with particular attention, I suppose, you know, I would have a bias to kind of paying a lot of attention to the rental crisis because, you know, most of my friends rent and that's what I'm seeing, um, you know, having the biggest impact. Think about who his friends probably are, not that I'm assigning who his friends are, but they're developers and people with a lot of money who are making money out of this situation. I mean, I, I mean, I guess his his constituency is very wealthy constituency. Let's say, well, parts of it are, but it, like when you're talking to Al Murphy or when you're talking to even you know his his ministerial colleagues or whatever in Finnegale, like is there is it either we don't get it or we are ideologically opposed to the state taking care of social housing and the market t- can take care of it. Which is it? Because it's the only way to unseat that kind of thing. Like the, that attitude is not going to change, you know, it, unless Fine Gael are voted out, basically. So here's the problem. I mean, look, I, I don't have the answers to the internal workings of Owen Murphy's <laughs> brain or, or, or his colleagues, right? But I can just tell you what I observe. Any minister who stands up on the floor of the Dáil and says €320,000 is an affordable price for a starter home for a young couple in Dublin doesn't know what they're talking about. First of all, because under the central bank's mortgage lending rules, they wouldn't get the loan, right? Uh, or under the local authority rebuilding Ireland home loan, they wouldn't get the loan. Mm. Like we, we have a huge cohort of individuals and couples and they earn gross before tax somewhere between 35000 and 75000 as a household. They can't access accommodation if you're selling it for €320,000. 
The same applies for rent. So when Owen Murphy stands up and says he believes €1,200 a month is affordable rent, right, for a standard two-bedroom apartment in Dublin. Like, okay, it's cheaper than the 2200 that's currently being asked for for asking rent in the city or the €1,700 uh, uh, that's the average rent in Dublin City. But it's not affordable. Like, And in some senses, because we focus so much and rightly so on the homelessness crisis and the scandal of family and child homelessness, and because we know the scale of the social housing crisis, because we count it, the affordable housing crisis, including the affordable rental crisis, is kind of only beginning to percolate into the public debate. Like the ESRI have done a really important piece of research. They published it last year. And they got every bit of data going back to 2002. And they asked a very simple question. How many people not eligible for social housing support and HAP and RAS are paying high housing costs to rent or to buy. And by high housing costs, they're spending more than 30% of their take-home pay uh, on rent or mortgages. And that doesn't leave them enough money to buy an ordinary basket of goods in a given week or month. It's a very good measure. And what they found was across the income uh, groups, 30-something percent had high housing costs. But more worryingly, what they found was if you went to the kind of bottom 25% of income earners, now these, are, again, aren't people on social welfare, aren't eligible for social housing support. 75% of those households had high housing costs. And what they also found is that's not just now. That has been the case in the last decade, the decade before and the decade before that. So what that shows is we have structurally built into our housing system this huge affordability crisis. During the Celtic Tiger it was alleviated somewhat because people could get access to, to cheap finance with all of the difficulties that created. But what it also shows is we have had this huge problem. And you know, we're talking about the consequence of today in terms of people leaving the city, people not being able to work in the city, whether they're nurses or guards or artists or fashion designers or, or whatever else. And, you know, the minister says 1,200 euros is, is affordable. Well, it's not affordable if your household is earning 45,000 euros uh, uh, gross. It's not. It falls way above the ESRI's own definition. So what we need to start doing is saying, what do we mean by affordable? It's rents at between 700 and 900 euros for decent accommodation, one, two and three bed in Dublin. It's house prices to buy starter homes, good two and three bedroom, A2 energy rating between 180 and 250,000. That's affordable because that's the only way you ensure that the mortgage repayments or the rental payments are below 30% of the take-home pay of the occupants. And until I hear a Fianna Fáil or a Fine Gael minister opposition spokesperson say definitively that's what government policy is and we're going to invest in delivering it, this crisis is going to keep getting worse. And unless you flood the market, though, with, with new bills, how do you get those affordable prices from a rental market? Two, two things. First of all, we have a lot of vacant stock and we shouldn't forget that there's a lot of vacant stock in our urban centres and not just in the big cities but in the towns that with a mixture of carrot and stick, you could get a lot of over-the-shop stuff. Um, and some of that is happening, but we need to do more. But we also need a lot of new builds. But what does it cost to build a three-bedroom house? Well, it costs you €140,000. What does it cost to build a two-bedroom apartment? It costs you about €200,000 to €225,000. So if that's what it costs to build, why are you being asked to pay three hundred, four hundred, four hundred and fifty thousand for those same units? Because the private sector inflates the price of land, there's very, very significant cost of finance, there's very, very substantial developers' margins that doubles the price above what it costs to construct. That's why public housing on public land is the only way you can deliver because you don't have to charge for the land, you don't have to include the development levies uh, or the site servicing. What you do is you rent or sell at cost so that for you to buy that house that costs 140 to build, you can buy it for 180 once you put in the compliance and, and the professional fees and all of that. And that's what should be happening 
on O'Devany and Oscar Trainer and Kilcarbury and all those other sites. And then local authorities could decide what percentage of affordable rental do we need, affordable sales, social, and councillors would be best placed to know what that mix is in those particular localities. Ona Bryn, thank you very much for that very, very enlightening and technical and nerdy conversation, which is our favourite type <laughs> on this. Really appreciate you coming in. I know you're really busy this week, so thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Get in the sea. This week, to get in the sea, it's a unanimous talking point. Everyone we feel is in agreement that shagging graft and quarter sign uh, that's replaced in Nolug Shona Ditch. Now, obviously, there's bigger questions of obviously it's not the correct Irish, but whatever. We love Irish, we're Irish. And what has happened with the graft and quarter sign replacing uh, a Christmas greeting is that no longer are we celebrating. Christmas when the Christmas lights go up we are celebrating the start of the shopping season and I know that this is probably not uh, a new thing it's obviously that's what the whole of Dublin Town is there for is to drive sales and all that shit Dublin Town the organisation yeah but when we actually have it in black and white or blue and gold as the case may be up there a big shining light of a sign that says you're now entering a shopping quarter rather than happy Christmas it's actually really really depressing and as somebody pointed out on Twitter I think um, it just looks really like the law and order sign I hope that it's going to come down there's been calls from everyone and people were getting annoyed because it was like they just didn't like the name but I think there's like the fact that people are getting annoyed about this sign is uh, due to the other issues it represents the Mm -hmm. fact that we are not controlling our city it's being driven by businesses um, who are trying to make sales as opposed to the people who live in the city and the bigger issues around homelessness and everything that that uh, represents so it's not just it's a shit sign it's also what it represents Yeah, well, it's totally. a bigger picture. And what I find interesting as well is that a lot of people who get real um, patronising or whatever or just a bit snide about uh, stuff that artists and other people have been talking about in the city. They're going like, oh, hipsters are giving out because, you know, someone had to move somewhere or you lost a pub or whatever. Mm. It's like, bitch, don't think they're not going to come for your <laughs> shit as well. Like everything is going to be blandified and, and homogenized. And like, no, it's just this classic, like, you know, goes to Smurf at business school once, you know, like does marketing. Yeah. It's, you know, gra- nobody fucking calls it Graft and Quarter. It's not Graft and Quarter. And you're taking away the thing. Like you think you're selling something to people and you're taking the, away the thing the, that, that actually, actually sells, sells it. Yeah. Like, oh, stage, get and see. <laughs> um, now, from bad to good, Una, what are your fave bits? You've won fave bit. I have one fave bit and it is the announcement this week that Diana Ross is playing Emma on the Friday of Pride next year. That's my fave bit. That's a really good fave bit. Mm. I've only got one fave bit as well. And it was just the best moment of my week last week when I opened uh, my email and I got an invitation from the RHA and obviously I love art. And it was a picture from Dynasty. Right, <laughs> it was like because it's, it's my fucking favorite thing. I know it is Dynasty it is in the RHA. Sorry, my mind absolutely blew. What? It's an exhibition from Michael Robinson called Under the Wrong Star, um, and it is looking at uh, loads of cultural things. I like Dynasty, but I love how much you love Dynasty. I love it. The outfits, the drama the unravelling of the stories the fact that you don't think anything really happened in an 
in one of the episodes and it's literally like oh my god that was so bananas when I reflect back on it anyway we'll do an episode on Dynasty one day speaking of <laughs> Dynasty I would like to now move on to our <laughs> Dynasty of listeners uh, they are our Patreon supporters and our lovely people and all the people who are getting in touch with us um, so we want to just give a few shout outs Dr. Neve McGowan thank you for your kind words about that great Tara Stewart interview in last week's pod which I really loved Andrea that was really great and thank you to one of our new Patreon supporters, Kate Ferris. We see you. Be like Kate. Sign up to our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. And to you, Katrina, listening all the way in Toronto, yet still wanting the Grafton Quarter sign to get in the sea. I think it's a universal thing. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for the soundtrack. And he might be giving us something else later. Stay tuned for... 30 seconds later Sarah Fox did all of our designs and you can find links to all of our socials on our website unitedirelandpodcast.com and if you're enjoying listening do let us know if you have any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to cover um, do let us know as well drop us a mail or a DM and if you'd like us to visit you somewhere around the world that's really hot at night at night (laughs) do let us know as well I just think the idea of visiting someone at night is kind of creepy that's why I said that really? if you want us to visit you at night yeah, no? I, I visit most people at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> tuna chicken roll, hit me. You do it. Our tuna chicken roll this week is from the one and only BFF of United Ireland, Crystal Clear. He has a new EP out and this track, Autobahn, is... Your favourite. I prefer Andre New, but was, I'm also behind Autobahn and I do like the visuals that he has done. Well, this is... If it's if it's nothing else, it's a tuna chicken roll. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was oh, Devony Gardens. Gardens.
Excuse me, is this the autobahn? 